The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Chelsea, World Club Cup champions against Palmeiras on Saturday. We salute them and ponder the significance of this tournament. Meanwhile, in the Premier League, Man United Saints, a game of two Ralphs. Uh, Spurs, the worst performance against Wolves since the first two little piggies. Watford and Norwich, as much chance of staying up as you pass the Super Bowl half-time. Plus all the rest of the Premier League stories. Then we'll look forward to the return this week of the biggest competition in football, the Intertotally Cup. We've got the draw coming up. Also, there's midweek Champions League action too. All of that and probably a bit more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Morning all. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way, listener. We're having a hot date with your eardrum. If you're catching us on Monday the 14th of February, we being... Hello, Daniel Story. Welcome back from Cameroon. Thank you very much, James. Good morning. Mm. Good morning to you. Charlie Eccleshire is also with us. Hi, Charlie. Hi, James. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. And also, and on the line romantically from Paris on Valentine's Day, is Tom Williams. All right, Tom. Hello, James. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you so much. Have you, get, have you been getting much love this, this Monday morning? I mean, what could be more romantic than waking up on your own in a hotel room in the world's most romantic city and then immediately jumping on a train to leave said city uh, to return to London? But I tell you what, James, I've got yeah. all the love I need right here. That's so true. Oh, well, you're, you're back now. You're not in Paris. I'm still in, I'm still in Paris, but I'll be leaving, uh, I'll be leaving soonish. Okay. I mean, after oh, we've right. done the pod. Not, not, yeah, not to spread be... panic in, in the ranks <laughs> Off in five this, minutes. at this early juncture. We'll, we'll see how we go, eh? Uh, <laughs> right, well, so much to discuss today. Uh, the Club World Cup, it's totally... Uh, you know, Speaking of matches and that, we'll see who you, you, we, you're going to get paired up with. with the eagerly Honestly, just the mention of the Intertotally is enough to make my heart start beating slightly more quickly. Well, there you go. And wait, wait till you see who you're drawn out of the famous Intertotally bag of balls, uh, sack of balls probably with, uh, when we get to that very much at the end of the show. Let's begin with some traditional Premier League scores. Saturday, a day of escalating drama. Man United held 1-1 at home by Saints. Brentford goalless with Palace. Brighton 2-0 winners at Watford. Everton 3-0 winners versus Leeds. And Man City 4-0 winners at Norwich. On Sunday, Newcastle won their third straight game. 1-0 over Aston Villa. Wolves, 2-0 winners against Spurs. It was 2-2 for Leicester and West Ham, and Liverpool took three points at Burnley with a 1-0 win. Absent from that list, Arsenal and Chelsea, who are off in Abu Dhabi, winning the world title. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. They can't look the Palmeiras supporters. Havertz, the man who won Chelsea the Champions League. And he might just have won them the Club World Cup as well. Hi, Havertz, man of destiny, TM. The winner there in Abu Dhabi after scoring, of course, the only goal in the Champions League final. Still, eh? England win midwinter World Cup in Middle East. That's suspicious. Um, curiously, this being officially the biggest game in the world you know, club football, I don't think any of our panel actually saw this. You were all busy doing kind of relevant Premier League stuff, weren't you? Yeah, I, I find it, maybe this is a uh, checking my sort of Premier League focus and all of that. I've never taken the Club World Cup especially seriously. I know that in other nations and confederations, we should probably mm. say, uh, it is taken more seriously. But it, just because, again, fully checking my um, prejudices, I suppose, I would always expect the winners of the Champions League, if they took it seriously, to win it just because... Their resources, and they usually do, etc., are so much greater. So, yeah, it always feels a little bit like a glorified um, Super Cup or that sort of event. You know, when, when this is added as a trophy that a teams won, feels a little bit. I don't know, like when really? Liverpool won five I trophies think... in a year, that always never quite sat right. It is, it is a peculiarly British trait that we really struggle with competitions that you qualify for by virtue of winning another competition. Mm. So the Community Shields has never been taken seriously. Managers who count it as a, as a trophy are, are mocked. Jose Mourinho's so, trouble. Jose Mourinho's trouble being, being the prime example. Same for the European Super Cup. 
Um, and consequently, you know, when it comes to totting up uh, trophy counts, be that for clubs or for managers or for players, there are asterisks all over the shop because we, we, we don't consider those trophies as being serious trophies. Whereas almost everywhere else in the world they do. I mean, you know, European clubs who win their equivalent of the Community Shield are very proud to have won that. European Super Cup is, is held in higher esteem uh, in, in continental Europe. And for the South American clubs in particular, you know, the, the chance to win that the Club World Cup final and, and prior to that, the Intercontinental Cup. Absolutely. The Kendall Cup. Were, were highly prized. And I, I think it's, I don't know, I mean, I, I understand why that's the case, but I, th- I think it's a shame that we're so sniffy about these yeah. trophies because they're, you know, you, you have to have won something very significant to qualify for them and, and you know, they're, they're not easy things to win. Absolutely right, Tom. I think part of it comes down to the psychology of when they're played. I think maybe we, we suggest that the time to win trophies is April, May, June, not August, or as in the Super Cup and the Community Shield, or in the middle of a very busy January in terms of the Club World Cup. It it, it probably says a lot about the Premier League's pulling power, um, but everything seems geared towards domestic football at that time. And I think mm. if if that Club World Cup came after the Champions League final, you know, maybe a week after the Champions League final, I think people would love it. But, but it would be kind of a, a sort of icing on the cake, so to speak. But we've got other Champions League football on this week in which we're about to find a new champion. It almost just feels right. a little bit too late for it to matter. I do wonder as well, um, yeah, the, the timing and also the location. I, and, and again, maybe this is just a failure of imagination, but because... It, You're going to love the, the last... actual World Cup then, Charlie. Well, I know, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it does feel, it's in. Um, it's, te- it's been in uh, the UAE, hasn't it, over the last few years. And so feels a little bit like it's in this kind of FIFA land I know it was in Japan previously but maybe with our sort of small brains if it was played at the new Camp or the Bernabeu or something we'd feel right this is more a competition we can uh, relate to and engage with I don't know because they play the European Super Cup uh, in, in, in traditional European stadium we don't take that ter- seriously either. but that's Chelsea fans game. that's never going to be taken seriously all right. Uh, I must admit, I came here to praise Chelsea rather than bury the, the club. World Cup. <laughs> right now, as saying we've just won the Champions League and then beaten the best team in South America, who won back-to-back Copa Libertadores. And uh, let's have a bit of love. I have to say, well done uh, to Chelsea, to Thomas Tuchel, who continues his extraordinary run. He's yet to not reach the final of any competition that he's been in uh, with Chelsea. He's picked up three trophies in just over a year, if we're allowed to count the European Super Cup. Uh, he's in the hunt for three more this season. Uh, Cesar Azpilicueta has now won everything possible with Chelsea in his, in his span of around a decade at the club. Ooh, look at this stat. Edouard Mendy, who came in for the final, taking over from Kepa. He's won a trophy on average every 21 games since joining Chelsea. Extraordinary. He didn't have much to do in this final, though. Palmeiras were, were all about sitting back and trying to hit Chelsea on the break, uh, traditionally for a, a Brazilian side. Unfortunately for them, they're not a very good counter-attacking team. So it, it was there for Chelsea. Chelsea equally, I think Chelsea fans, with due respect, weren't very good either. Although Lukaku did get a goal in the first half. And then Kai Havertz got, was it a generous penalty? It was a penalty anyway, and he, he took it magnificently anyway in the extra time period, just as they were heading towards the penalties that Palmeiras were plainly playing for. So the plus for Chelsea, they did get the one trophy that had eluded them. And the, the minus is that they showed many of the same issues that I think uh, we'd seen previously against, well, Al-Hilal in the semi-final. I know you watched that one, guys. And, uh, of course, uh, Plymouth Argyle. Last week, still uh, a round of applause for them and commiserations to the something like 15,000 Palmeiras fans who journeyed from South America. You're mentioning how important it is for them. You try telling those fans this doesn't matter. Exactly. Many of them with replicas of the Club World Cup trophy in tinfoil and all the various <laughs> accoutrements um, and, and face another miserable journey home because, of course, they lost last time they were in the final as well, Daniel. The, the really interesting thing from the game was the the way in which Chelsea managed the, the penalty for Kai Havertz because it was one of those things that when you've seen it once, you can't quite believe it doesn't happen quite often in that Cesar Azpilicueta effectively dummied the penalty by holding the ball and 
making it look like he was going to shoot a tremendous piece of acting, we should say. Uh, and then uh, it was a slightly odd time to do it. And after the game, they all spoke about reducing the pressure. And I kind of thought, OK, maybe it does matter more to you than I thought, because it, it would seem a slightly odd occasion in which to reduce the pressure when it didn't feel like a, a hugely high pressure scenario. But it worked a treat because Havertz was able to kind of stay in the sidelines, prepare himself and then scored the penalty. So that was a I thought that was a really nice piece of play. I think it really did matter to Chelsea. I mean, I, yeah. I think for a player, whatever English fans may think about the Club World Cup, the chance to be world champions with your club and to have that title, I, I think is, is pretty huge. And I think for Chelsea, Roman Abramovich had, had flown out for this game. It was one of the few Chelsea matches he can uh, attend. And uh, it, the, the message we hear very much being that, that we have to win this trophy. We yeah. need to complete the set. Yeah, if you're a Chelsea manager, there are certain matches that take on a, a, a huge amount of importance and they are the matches when Abramovich is there. You know, it's, it was said after the game that Tuchel kind of went to Abramovich and said, this is for you, this is for all your work, this is what you've done for this club. And, you know, that's very clever politics because Chelsea managers can change quite quickly. So mm. staying in staying in the boss's good books is a, a pretty savvy plan. Could you tweet something like, this is for you, this is for all that you've done for the, the club? Sorry, Tom. I think in the wider context of Chelsea's season as well, it will do them a lot of good because, as you say, this is a trophy that matters a lot to the players. It, it, it will matter a lot to the owner, to the club. You get to wear the, the Club World Cup badge on your shirts for a year, which is nice. And also, if you look at the situation that Chelsea will return to, none of the teams who were threatening to catch up with them in the Premier League have done so. Um, although their football you know, during this tournament hasn't perhaps been scintillating. It has enabled some players who, who needed game time and who needed goals to get them. You think about Lukaku and, and Havertz notably in, in the final. Um, so I think I think all in all, if you add the, the, the satisfaction of, of winning the trophy with the fact of being able to spend a little bit of time in the sunshine while everyone else is, you know, slaving away in the, in the, in the rain and the cold mm. and the fact that none of those teams have, have managed to, to put any heat on the league, it, it's been a very positive fortnight. I was just going to say, I mean, this was something spoke about on this podcast a few weeks ago. It was Chelsea emerging into this sort of deluxe cup team. And and this reinforces that a bit. And, you know, their, their league finishes the last four seasons have been fourth, fourth, third, fifth, never even near a title race. They're not in one this year, but they continue to be superb in the cups. And it, it's maybe a depressing uh, kind of indictment on modern football that, you know, we used to think of cup teams as being sort of mid-table top division teams who could do something in the FA Cup or the League Cup. Now it's an unbelievably wealthy side that doesn't seem quite good enough to uh, compete for a title, but is able to to compete in all of the domestic cups and also the Champions League. And I do wonder if Chelsea's sort of um, policy of instability, of sacking managers all the time, whether you they've paid for that a little bit with you know no, um, no title challenge, but it's good enough to get them trophies most of the mm. time you know even someone like Sarri who you know came in for a lot of criticism still won the Europa League uh, Rafa Benitez won the Europa League with them like they, they're just this trophy winning machine even if they're not competing for the league and they can win three more in the course of this season already won the European Super Cup now the Club World Cup they've got Liverpool in the League Cup final in about two weeks time they've also got Luton in the FA Cup what is that fifth round they've got Lille in the Champions League that'll be the week after uh, this one. And Kai Havertz, quick word on him before we move on. Costs 70 million. I have the impression that he hasn't done a huge amount for them beyond the score, the goal in the European Cup final, and then the decisive goal in the Club World Cup final, which I, I guess, you know, might justify the fee on its own. A deluxe Steve Okarigi. Hmm. But that was yeah, a quick word. That's, that's, not going on, that's not going on the CV, is it? <laughs> I was just going to say a, a weird statistical nugget, assuming he plays in each of these games, which I'm not sure he will, but Edouard Mendy has got the chance to play in, I think, six different competitions in six games because he'll have played an AFCON final, then a Club World Cup final, then a Premier League game, then a Champions League game, then an EFL Cup final and then an FA Cup fifth round tie, which probably hasn't been done before, I think. Almost certainly not, Daniel. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Chelsea heading home. Probably one or two things for Thomas Tuchel to think about on the flight. But let's uh, ourselves get back to those teams who, as Tom mentioned, were failing to put the heat on in the top four race. 
Tuesday night sees PSG lock horns with Real Madrid in the French capital. Amazingly, listeners Messi and Neymar and Co are 9-1 to in the outright market for the Champions League, while Los Blancos are a massive 16-1. to Both appealing prices, as the side that gets through this tie will be well battle-hardened. A hamstring issue could rob Real Madrid of their mercurial number 9. I love that word, mercurial, but I so rarely get to use it. What does it even mean? Anyway, this game is pretty intriguing for a number of reasons, listeners. Messi v Real Madrid again. He enjoyed scoring 26 goals in El Clasico and was on the winning side 19 times against his great nemesis. He'll want to play well on Tuesday for sure. This game also throws up the prospect of Sergio Ramos taking on Real Madrid. Bit weird, that. And not to mention the potential Brazilian dance-off between Neymar and Vinicius Jr. Whether Neymar will be fit to start is unlikely. Pochettino's puppy dog eyes poker face wouldn't make you go all in, but I bet the former Barca man will make a cameo though. The Paddy Power traders make the Parisians the favourites, listeners, at 19-20, the draw is 11-4, and the Real Madrid win is 5-2. But if you fancy Real to reacquaint with an old friend, Messi to score first at just over 3-1 is just too tempting for me to ignore. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Bill Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. All right, top four race, four teams... In four points behind Chelsea. Uh, West Ham are fourth now. Man United are a point back, having played a game less. Arsenal, who beat Wolves since our last show, are sixth. Didn't play this weekend. They're two points back off the Hammers, but have played three games less than David Moyes' side. Wolves are seventh. They're four off fourth place, and they've played two games less than West Ham. Crikey, uh, Charlie, you were at. The Tottenham Hotspur Stadium on Sunday for Wolves 2-0 victory over Tottenham. What's the difference between North London and the Canadian border, Charlie? Lorries don't block nothing in North London. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't great from him. I mean, he's been so solid over the last couple of years since coming back from injury, you know, and the sort of, the errors he made, which were becoming a little bit, commonplace and a bit of a concern before he got that injury were back with a vengeance I mean the first one he sort of paws at the ball like a, a cat or maybe we shouldn't use uh maybe we shouldn't be talking about cat we'll save that for later um and then the the second one it's a loose pass and his distribution has been called into question before and then the, the thing is when you play Wolves I mean we saw we kind of saw what Wolves are about on both on Thursday and Sunday, I think if you can go ahead against them, they can look quite toothless, as Arsenal did. And even against 10 men, Wolves didn't really create an awful lot. But the flip side of that is if they do get ahead, they're extremely difficult to break down. And and, and that sounds as if this was just a kind of back-to-the-wall defensive effort. It wasn't at all. They had a big threat on the counter. Could have They had the better chances, I'd say, outside of their two goals. You know, They could easily have scored more. But yeah, I mean, the, as soon as they went, I think it was inside 18 minutes... Spurs just didn't really have the ingenuity to even nearly break them down. I mean, they, they had a, a couple of chances, but it, it wasn't it wasn't a ton. And uh, yeah, sobering few days for Spurs after the mm. Southampton defeat as well. And that's now three defeats uh, in the league in a row. And the next game's away at um, away at City. And it's 2004 since they lost four league games in a row. So. All of a sudden, what felt like quite a rosy situation under Conte has has gone the other way. Hmm. Charlie, I read that 19-year-old Luke Cundle, who made his uh, league debut in this game for Wolves, had a 96% passing accuracy. Was his performance as, as sparkling and spectacular as that stat would suggest? He, he was really impressive. And I was when I saw the team sheet, it was asking a few of the Wolves guys that they get, you know, how good is, is this player? Is this a bit of a surprise he's playing? And... and they're like, yeah, he is very good and he's clearly way above under 23 levels, uh, but we'll kind of find out today. And he really answered those questions because he 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 was excellent and didn't look out of place at all. Wolves, I mean, Pedence as well, I thought was really, really good. Also, I mean, infuriating, kept going down with 
sort of borderline injuries, shall we say. But he having him on the counter made a real difference because it meant Spurs couldn't just push up um, and leave gaps in behind. Jimenez took his goal really well. Um, I mean, I, I'd still be very surprised if they had enough in an attacking sense to get top four, I have to say. I know that they're sort of back in the conversation with this win, but... Um, yeah, Bruno Large doing a really, really good job there. And this was a fully deserved and in the end, quite comfortable win. I mean, they were stroking it around in the final few minutes, um, which was, you know, you would have expected a kind of siege at that time, but it didn't really happen. I think the unfortunate thing from a Spurs perspective is that when they appointed Antonio Conte, everyone agreed that it was a great appointment um, because it, 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 he looked like the ideal person to come in and sort things out. And that's what everyone says about Conte. Oh, if your team is struggling, if you want someone to come in and just sort them out immediately, give them a bit of defensive rigour, a bit of discipline, then he's your man. He'll do it. And of course, you know, the, the first few weeks were, were very positive. There was that there was that unbeaten run in the league. But you look at the nature of that performance against Southampton in midweek, the nature of the performance against Wolves, the lamentable quality of, of the defending, absolute sort of schoolboy stuff in both of those matches, not helped by Hugo Lloris having, you know, what is a fairly rare for him in, in recent times, poor performance. And Conte looks so crestfallen. And you think, you know, Spurs have kind of, they've kind of got to him already. And within, you know, a couple of months of his arrival, he's already sort of trying to temper expectations. You know, he, he, he seemed quite kind of, quite kind of beaten down in the post-match press conference talking about, you know, do these players have the level, you know, being quite dismissive of, of, of even having the top four as, as an objective sort of thing. And it's... Um, it, it's it's quite striking how quickly that that mood has turned. But I think if you, if you just look at the way that Spurs have played in those last two games in particular, and especially the way they've defended, there is obviously a, a huge amount of work to be done there. And this idea that Conte was going to come in and have the kind of immediate impact that he had at Chelsea or, or at Inter, I think we're already seeing that you know that is not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think on the defensive side as well, Dyer is a really big miss for them. Uh, and I think him coming back should make quite a big difference. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, when they started, they they, they had quite a few of these um, pretty narrow wins, which could easily have gone either way. I mean, obviously, they scored two in stoppage time, one at Leicester. They actually deserved to win that game, but could have obviously gone either way. They beat Watford 1-0 in a game that they easily could have conceded a late penalty to go 1-0 down. They beat Leeds at home, having been battered in the first half. But they got through them, and you kind of thought... I get when a team wins games and plays badly, I guess it goes one of two ways broadly. Either it's a sign of, well, they're winning and they're playing badly. Just think what they'll do when they start playing well. Or it's a, this may be papering over some cracks. And it definitely feels from the last few games that it was the latter. I'm a big fan of content. I think he's done amazingly already. He's really improved a lot of players. But some of his, uh, and I wrote about this for this morning, I, I do think... He's kind of intermittently said how bad Spurs are. In his fourth game after loss to Ennis Moura, he said the level of Tottenham is not so high. And that was a kind of highlight of many sound bites in this speech where he just, I mean, he looked shell-shocked to be fair. And he was just saying, I, basically, I cannot believe how bad we are. And he's <laughs> intermittently, <laughs> genuinely, like that was 100% the sentiment. Uh, and he's kind of intermittently said that again. He said it after they lost one of three games against Chelsea, the first one. Yesterday, yeah, he kind of suggested that, you know, that the, some of the players don't have a winning mentality. He said, you know, I'm not used to battling for the top four. And I often think with Conte, you know, imagine how we would react if Mourinho had said this. A lot of the things he said are, you know, we would be saying, I can't, you know, how can you say you're not used to being in the top four? Is this beneath you? Da, 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 da. You know, what sort of message does that send to the players? And I do just wonder if, you know, initially what we were saying was, this is great, finally a manager who's delivering some home truths to this over-pampered, underachieving bunch of Spurs players. But maybe they're a group of players who have been fairly browbeaten. I mean, they had Mourinho telling them they were crap. They then had a summer where Fabio Paratici was touting many of them around for swap deals. In January, you know, it was pretty clear they were trying to move on, a lot of them. And Conte, Conte said in, in a press conference that, you know, we just need to get anyone in, basically. He was like, they don't even have to be the best. We just need someone anyone which is kind of, which is pretty damning on the squad you have um and i and you know conte's saying not used to fighting for the top four it's like but you took this job i mean what were you sort of expecting that 
you'd be in a title race this season with you know the team that you took over from Nuno uh, in November. Uh, mm. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe, and I do think as well, Conte. I'm sure you'll have seen this, James. He he can after defeats be extremely pessimistic. Um, like he hates losing so much that he does just sometimes look absolutely devastated and as though he's lost the will. But you know, obviously he'll bounce back, and and maybe this will get a reaction from Spurs. But I but mm. I do think it was maybe a bit of a misstep um, going down that route again yesterday. Right, well, indeed. Well, maybe they will bounce back. They've got games in hand. They'll always have yeah, I think that. I think they may well still get top four because it's really? such a weird... Yeah, I just think it's. Uh, it reminds me of the 96-97 title race. Which... So you can see Spurs doing it, but you can't see Wolves doing it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I can. But because, Sp- well, because they've got Kane and Son, partly. I mean, they've got these right. two cheap players who can cover up for all manner of sins. I think the the main thing is that the rivals have equally big issues and mm. in 96-97 in United won the league with 75 points and it was one of these title races where everyone kept losing and just when you thought okay they're going to go for it no then they lost and I kind of feel a bit like that with this top four race <laughs> we thought Spurs might get it together then they lose a couple of games now who are we thinking Arsenal I don't think there's probably there's probably not a crisis too far away there United can't seem to get it together I don't think West Ham have the squad and Wolves, the same. So I still think it's there for them, and they, they do have the games in hand. Well, next up, eh, let's hear about another of those teams, West Ham, who, Daniel, you witnessed in action away at the King Power. We all enjoy the sport we call the beautiful game. But since I've retired, I've discovered an ugly, even darker side to the sport we love. Join me as Jamie Redknapp investigates. Thanks, Jamie. We'll take it from here. Join Jamie Redknapp for Jamie Investigates, the football mockumentary series. Watch on Paddy Power's Twitter. This week, Jamie investigates people who still call the Premier League the Premiership. Do you know the truth? Paddy Power. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. We're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to the Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Daniel, four days on, the magic of the AFCON final. You were sat there, sweltering at the King Power for Leicester to West Ham to a game prefaced. I'm not sure if you saw this because you were at the stadium, by remarkable Graham Souness uh, intervention on the, on the big issue of the day. For me, looking at that video, that cat hadn't done anything right. For me... The cat has done nothing wrong. <laughs> Who? I didn't realise this. Graham's actually a vegan. Did you know that, Graham Sinus? No. I yeah, he I did discovered an interview. this recently. It's, it's a surprise, isn't it? Yeah. A vegan Food and Living did an interview with him September of last year in which he, he basically said, yeah, I'm a vegan. The biggest reason for that is that I think the way we treat animals is disgraceful. So clearly he wasn't going to be happy with He's also a brilliant Sinus. poster boy for it because he looked incredible. So yeah, fair play. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think I've sort of half decided to write a piece on this this week because Souness's comments are the latest in a... Whenever something non-football happens in football, the participants of football, that's players, managers, pundits, whoever, find it really difficult to switch out of talking about football, i.e. a disallowed goal or an offside, to, to switching up things that mattered. And you know, we had Moyes' press conference last week where he's sort of saying, basically, you know, he'll be disappointed with that. And, uh, you know, he has to learn from... We have to learn from these mistakes. If anything, he's hit the cat too well. (laughs) Exactly, you know, and it is... I, You know, both (laughs) of those people have been in football a very, very long time and I'm sure that kind of changes your psyche 
subconsciously. Mm. But it, people it, in football should stick to talking about football. That's the message, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, maybe, but um, yeah, it was very funny. I can see that. And then, I mean, for those of us interested in any sort of karmic delivery, Zuma was then. Well, he said we we initially looked like he he was holding his calf in the warm up and spoke to a, a West Ham. He's not going to mistreat that as well, is he? Oh, I see. Very right. Good. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and but yes, then he apparently it, it, it turned out he said he was feeling unwell. Uh, we don't know any mm. more than that. But um, yeah, I mean, he got an incredibly loud boo from from the Leicester fans when he came out to the warm up. So if he was in any way unsure about whether it was a good idea to play, then that might have changed his mind. But no, apparently he said he was feeling unwell. So, right. As you've probably seen, uh, he hasn't been suspended by West Ham, but his brother, Yuan Zuma, who features in the infamous video, will not play uh, for Dagenham and Redbridge in the National League until the RSPCA have concluded their investigation, or Sue Gray or whoever it is it, it, that's involved in that one. And uh, Didier Deschamps suggesting that he might also drop Kurt Zuma for France. Has there been much, much reaction to this in France, Tom? There has, um, you know, a comparable reaction to the one that we've seen in the UK. There's there've been a lot of talk about it. We discussed it at length uh, on a Canal Football Club last night, which is France's flagship football show. Um, and I think the feeling, the overall feeling, was that he's he's done something very bad. That he's gonna that is going to be associated with him for the rest of his career. Um, but also that you know this has taken on perhaps slightly troubling proportions and that at some point he needs to be allowed to resume his career in in peace but yeah in in you know from a from a France perspective I, I think the most telling um intervention in recent days has been uh, the comments from Didier Deschamps who who described what Zuma had done as unacceptable and intolerable uh, and and you know as we all know Deschamps is is very big on on discipline. He's very big on on squad harmony. Uh, and the suggestion here is that Zuma is probably going to be overlooked for the next France get together in March. Uh, and there's an awful lot of competition for places uh, for mm. France at centre back. And and Deschamps has generally been been quite keen to pick Zuma whenever you know whenever he's been available. I mean, I think he 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 started France's most recent game. You know, he's been in all the recent squads. So this could end up having fatal consequences because if he you know if he's not called up and someone else is and they come in and, and they Im- impress he might he might not get a second chance mm. there you go that's the Kurt Zuma situation Daniel meanwhile the game a, a lively one ending with in your words some absolutely classic lestering yes yeah I mean they they have two issues which is that as soon as they get a lead and and coming from behind to get one is is, is reasonably unusual um Whenever they get a lead and the last 15 minutes come, they sit, they drop deep towards their own goal and invite pressure, which is a totally normal thing for many different football teams and football managers to do. But when you can't defend crosses into your box and you can't defend set pieces, it, 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 it it's getting to the point of parody where Leicester fans... Leicester brought on... Brendan Rodgers chose to bring on Yannick Vestergaard with about four minutes to go. And he brought off Yuri Tielemans, who was controlling the midfield and was their only real outlet in midfield when they tried to escape. And the fans booed. And they booed, I think, partly because Yannick Vestergaard has not been a popular signing. It's not really worked out. He's not really improved the defence. And he wasn't starting instead of Daniel Amati and Kaglar Siunchu yesterday, which is pretty damning if you've watched either of those two recently. But they were also booing because they, they thought they knew what was going to happen. And two minutes later, Leicester concede a corner. Yannick Vestergaard is six foot six and manages to jump to a height of about five foot eight. And Craig Dawson wins a header and they concede a last minute equaliser again. And mm. do you know what? There was two minutes left and West Ham had a break. And I was at the, the Leicester Spurs game and I just thought, if, if, Le- if West Ham score a winner here, I think Rodgers is done. And I think he would have been done. And wow. you know, I was speaking to Leicester fans after the 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 Forest defeat in the cup, um, with a slightly sort of gleeful tone in my voice, but the ones I was thinking <laughs> were saying, do you know what? If if Rogers goes this week, there will be plenty of people who say, yeah, he did a good job, but we're quite happy with that. That's happened. So when we take a lead, we cede it. When we concede first, we struggle to get back into games, and that's not ideal. Mm. Three years and you're done. That's the Carlo Ancelotti maxim about how long you should stay at a football club. Maybe that's where we are with. With Brendan Rodgers, you mentioned Craig Dawson with the stoppage time equaliser. It was uh, Jared Byrne who'd opened the scoring with his seventh goal in seven games for West Ham. Yuri Tillemans equalising from the penalty spot. 
Ricardo Pereira put Leicester in head ahead, and then right at the death, uh, that uh, header was it actually a header? Or was it handball? Well, uh, I, I think I think shoulder. Since the change in handballs, I think that's enough. If it hits somewhere on the, the short sleeve, I think that's enough not to be a handball. It's one of those that fans, if it goes for you, you're happy. If it goes against you, you cry foul. It will always happen. But I think, yeah, I think it was fine. I don't know. I feel people are so. People really want to get at Brendan Rodgers. Um, I think, uh, you know, people have always felt he's a bit jumped up and pretentious and, and all of this and arrogant. I don't really see that. So I can, I can see where that comes from. But I think, you know, most managers do think a huge amount of themselves. And I think were he not Northern Irish and, you know, I think British and Northern Irish managers are judged to a different standard and we don't like them to be self-confident and talk about philosophies and tactics traditionally anyway. So I think there's always been a bit of suspicion around him. And I think it's important not to lose sight of what an unbelievable job he has done at Leicester. I mean, they finished, what, fifth the last two seasons and won the FA Cup. That is unbelievable when you consider the teams that they're up against to do that. And I know it's coloured by the fact that they collapsed, you know, at the end of both of those seasons but it's just really interesting how that changes how it's framed because if they'd surged from mid-table to finish fifth in both those seasons and won the FA Cup, we'd be saying, wow, what an unbelievable job Brennan Rodgers has done. Similarly with you know Liverpool's collapse in 2014. I mean, to win the title, they had to win something like 14 out of the last 15 games and they won 13. I mean, it was an, it was an incredible finish and they did it with a really bad defence, which you can say is his fault. But you know, I think that, that was still an unbelievable effort that season. And I... I just think, yeah, maybe it's reached the end of its natural life cycle there, but I don't think that should mean people, you know, now diminish and say, ah, see, I told you Rogers is a fraud. He isn't very good. Like He's done an unbelievable job there. So, yeah, I, I, I'm a big uh, defender of Brendan Rogers, and I don't think this should mean that he's that it's now laughable for him not to be considered for bigger roles. And there were some positives for Leicester yesterday, as as dispiriting as as that scenario at the end of the game repeating itself was. You know, Ricardo Pereira comes back into the team, scores. I thought Harvey Barnes looked excellent. Um, you know, West Ham end up taking up Vladimir Sufal. It seemed almost to sort of spare him from having Harvey Barnes continually running at him and, and getting in behind. So, you know, there, there are some positives there. But yeah, as, as Daniel was saying, there, there is just this this fundamental fragility to Leicester and throwing points away like they have done uh, late on in, in the last three home games is, does suggest that, that there is something, you know, something broken there. Very, very quickly, that one of the reasons that, that the supporters are, are not happy at the moment is a few weeks ago, Rodgers came out and said, perfectly reasonably, I suppose, that you know maybe last season is the peak of this team. You know Maybe winning the FA Cup and finishing fifth is very good for Leicester, and it is very good. But it just came at a time when I think that the perception was from supporters that Rodgers was kind of defending himself and defending his own honour rather than and maybe guilty of a little bit of ambition. And I think this is the hangover of a of a team that won the most unbelievable title league title six years, five, six years ago, because you don't get to tell Leicester fans that winning the FA Cup might be the best they'll ever have when they can remember winning the league five years ago, because that's kind of created this you know, this vacuum that nothing can ever fill. And in in that sense, you've got two ways of going. You either match up to your ambition again or you have some fun. And at the moment, Leicester fans aren't quite having either, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, while Leicester were busy Leicestering, the other top four contender were Man Uniting it up against Saints. And we'll talk about that game next. Elianusi. Jay Adams, chance for Southampton! Equaliser for Southampton! 1-1! Brilliantly finished by the Scottish international, Jay Adams. Yeah, Man United, third game in a row that they uh, had led at half-time but ended up drawing 1-1, this time against Southampton. The previous one, of course, midweek at Turf Moor. Saints, just one defeat in the last ten in all competitions for Southampton. That was against Wolves. Shea Adams in this game equalising three minutes into the second half. Should we start off with a bit of love for Ralph Hasenhutl's Southampton side? Yeah, no. I mean, I, th- I think it, it was very open game, this. Um, and I think uh, although a draw felt like a fair result, if you looked at the XG, 
I think United could legitimately have a lot of complaints, and this is something that Ralph Rangnick touched on after afterwards. You know, he was sort of asked why are your why are your team struggling to to put games to bed like this? Um, you know, when when they're starting games so well, when they're creating chances, and and he said, well, you know, you can't you can't accuse us of, of not creating opportunities because we clearly are. The problem is we're just not taking them, and there were there were multiple opportunities in this game where. Had Sancho's decision making been slightly better, had Rashford been able to play with with a bit more confidence and, and and the final ball been a little bit better, United would have put this game to bed. But yeah, absolute credit to Southampton for for exploiting the weaknesses in this in this United setup. I think particularly you look at the structure of that that Man United midfield. On paper, Rangnick is is putting all of United's best players on the pitch. But if you play with McTominay as your sole holding midfielder with Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba either side he's going to get exposed an awful lot and, and Southampton exploited that really intelligently um, by having Elianusi and, and Stuart Armstrong tucking inside um, and then creating space on the flanks for the for the fullbacks to get forward um, and, and United really struggled with that so I think yeah I think fair play to Southampton the, the goal they scored was absolutely fantastic I mean really nicely constructed down the left-hand side again exploiting those spaces in the United system pulling people out of position Rafael Varane ends up in a situation where he has to go to the ball, but he has to cover the man behind him at the same time and obviously can't do both. And as a consequence, Che Adams runs in and, and, and tucks the ball away well. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a really entertaining game. And I thought Southampton, although they didn't create as, as many high quality chances as, as United, I, I, think they were, I think they were worthy of the point. I did think when uh, Rannick made the XG point in his interview, it was like, no, don't do it, Ralph. You could almost hear the proper football men just sort of screaming at their televisions. And he also said XG ratio, which isn't quite right. So that might have annoyed the stats guy. So maybe he's kind of united these two warring factions in an anti-Rannick movement. But, um, at least his players love him, though, eh, Charlie? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got that. Mm. No, I mean, Southampton, having watched them uh, at Spurs and, and really outplay Spurs only, I mean, it was it was as tight a turnaround as you can have outside of the ridiculous, you know, the two-day Christmas thing, because to play an evening game and then a 12.30, we normally think of, if you have an evening on the Thursday, say, you then play at two on the Sunday. So it was a tight turnaround. And Hassan Hootel referenced that afterwards, and I think clearly was quite annoyed about it. And for a a hard-running team like his, um, that was a concern. And it's pretty damning then that United weren't able to exploit that and that Southampton seemed to get stronger. They, they almost got a second wind. Um, but like mm. Leicester, United have this issue and it is self-perpetuating, isn't it? When you start throwing away leads, it becomes a, uh, a mental thing and the fans are obviously so aware of it and it just gets tense and, you, and feels almost like a grim inevitability. What's that, listener? Did Cristiano Ronaldo score? No, he didn't. Uh, without a goal now in his last six appearances, which is his worst run at club level since 2009. All right, well, that was Man United 1, Southampton 1. Still to come on this Totally Football show, of course, the draw for the 2022 Intertotally Cup. Also, in a matter of moments, the dramatically entitled Fight for Survival. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite according to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. And that's got to be good news for all you Man United fans out there, eh? Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match shots. T's and C's apply. It's over 18s only. And please, gamble responsibly. Totally Football League show is out today, Monday. Uh, did Mitrovic score again? Yes, he did. He's now up to 31 goals. In the championship this season, uh, as Fulham won again. Ooh, Nottingham Forest, Daniel. Centre half in goal, rescuing a point. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, sort of, uh, we we wriggled our way out of a, an entirely self-inflicted problem in that Bryce Samba had the ball in his hands in the penalty area, so the ball is in play. The defender kind of gets in his way, so he lashes out the defender. Not only does he get sent off, it's also a penalty because the ball's in play. And yes, Joe Wall goes in goal and 
Forrest somehow squeeze a last-minute equaliser with 10 men and an outfield player in goal. Brilliant. Still in the playoff hunt. Yes, very much so, yes. And the last time that an outfield player went in goal for Forest was Steve Chettle in 97-98 when we were promoted to the Premier League. So it is on. Absolutely. More of that in the Totally Football League show with Matt Davis-Adams. Arsenal and Chelsea, the top two in English women's football, had a goalless draw on Friday night, but it was, in the words of Michael Cox in The Athletic, one of the games of the season. You can hear more about why in The Athletic's women's football podcast. That's out on Tuesday. Also out on Tuesday is the Totally Football Show European Edition, in which we'll hear about Bayern Munich losing to Bochum, and maybe a song with that as well. And we'll look ahead to the Champions League last 16, which gets underway Tuesday, Wednesday. Sporting out of Lisbon are playing Man City. Salzburg take on the uh, recently beaten Bayern. Liverpool make the trip to San Siro, where they had such a good time last time. This, this time around, they're facing Inter and Paris Saint-Germain. Take on Real Madrid. Ooh, Tom, you're in Paris. What are they saying about that one? Paris is a buzz, James. I've had to I've had to firmly close all the windows in my hotel room because the the buzz uh, is is so loud. Um, mm. But yeah, as ever, PSG's entire season boiling down to a handful of knockout games in the Champions League in the spring. Uh, PSG had a very squeaky, very scratchy one 0 win over Rennes on Friday, where Kylian Mbappe bailed them out in stoppage time, not for the first time this season. Um, it looks like they're going to be without Neymar, um, who isn't yet fit um, after an injury. That The main talking point has been who's going to be in goal for PSG, because mm. they've been rotating Kayla Navas and Gianluigi Donnarumma this season. But yes, big, 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 big game for PSG, this one. OK. Big game for Newcastle on Sunday, when they took on Aston Villa. And notched up their third Premier League win in a row. Crikey, it's the first time they've done that since November 2018 in the Premier League. Also means that Eddie Howe has defeated both Lampard and Gerrard in the space of the same week. Crikey. Yeah, I think this was a really important win, not just because, as you say, it's three wins in a row, although that does give them a little bit of breathing room, um, but just because... This was a performance in, which was very unstereotypically Eddie Howe-like. You know, they they got a lead. Their best player, Kieran Trippier, went off with a an injury that, that unfortunately looked pretty serious. Um, and they'd already had to take off their first-choice left-back. So at that point, Gerard told his full-backs to bomb on, to overload on, on Newcastle's reserve full-backs. And, and I assumed that, that Villa would get back into the game. And there was a, a, a slightly unfortunate offside decision. But other than that, Newcastle just defended everything. And that's exactly what I didn't think we'd get from Eddie Howe. You know, there was the tactical fouling. They were slowing down the game. They were gritty. They were, you know, they were clearing everything out of the box. Dan Byrne had a, you know, had a brilliant home debut. And that more than anything convinces me that they, they probably have got enough to stay up now. I, I, I didn't think that three weeks ago. I thought they would, they would stay in trouble. But um, just the manner in which, you know, that, that full-time whistle and the way the crowd bought into it, Neville, Neville was... Gary Neville was constantly referring to on commentary about the kind of the crowd feeling different from the last time he was there. And that's absolutely true. It really has got a completely different feel to the place. And as I say, I thought Howe was, was the right appointment at the wrong time or in the wrong situation. But he, he results and performances like yesterday completely proved that wrong. OK, Kieran Trippier with another free kick in this game. He's now got two in two, having previously not scored since August 2018. Stephen Gerrard, meantime in a bit of a tricky spot, having won only one of his last six games with Villa. Newcastle moving four points clear of the bottom three. Norwich in 18th place. They've played a game more. And Norwich, uh, meanwhile, and Burnley were both facing top two opposition. It went more or less as you would expect. Burnley were beaten at home by Liverpool. Fabinho with the goal there. And Norwich got taken apart at Carrow Road by Man City. In particular, Raheem Sterling with his fifth Premier League hat-trick. Crikey. A perfect hat-trick, but I think a little bit should be sort of struck from the record given that he only got the left-footed one because he missed a penalty. Feels like a... I don't like the fact Showboating that... Showboating get... of anything, surely. Yeah, yeah, he just really... He should have taken <laughs> it left-footed. Commitment yeah. to the perfection of the hat-trick. 
it always annoys me that you get when you glance that the history books will show that it won't be a pen and you'll th- that looks like an even better hat trick that just no pens in there and it won't be known that actually one was really one from their own penalty Some, something must be done about this yeah and, and on Liverpool what felt like a really important victory in the sense that it was a classic potential banana skin in the way that trips to turf mole always are uh, not least with the inclement weather conditions, hammering rain and, and swirling wind and, and Burnley uh, being really up for it on the back of some improved recent performances, notably that, that draw against Man United in, in midweek. Um, and, and Liverpool did look quite shaky. I mean, that first half in particular, Burnley created much more clear-cut opportunities um, and it took that goal from Fabinho just before half-time to, to, to put Liverpool in the ascendancy. And it, it wasn't a comfortable afternoon. Um, and I think when we were looking ahead to uh, the Africa Cup of Nations, there was a feeling that if Liverpool's season was going to go off the rails at any point, it would be while they were without uh, Mo Salah and, and Sadio Mane during uh, the tournament. And an actual fact... Their form has, has been excellent. You know, that's four wins on the spin uh, in, in, the, in the league. Salah and Mane in our back. Mane only started because Diogo Jota had, had picked up a knock and, and wasn't able to, to take his place. And, you know, neither of them really looked at it. But, you know, that hope that they can still give us all the title race we're, we're desperately hoping to see is, is, is still alive. You know, they've, they've got that, that game in hand. They've got that game against City to come. Um, and... It felt like quite an important victory, the sort of scrappy game you have to win by hook or by crook if you're to stand any chance of of, of challenging for the title, even though, you know, if we're being realistic, it, it, it does look it does look cities, doesn't it? It looks a bit done and dusted for Burnley and relegation as well. Only one win still in the Premier League this season, which is the fewest of any team in the in English league football uh, in this campaign. And Vote Veghorst, their big January signing, picking up an injury in the game as well. I was going to say, on, on Raheem Sterling, he's now on 106 Premier League goals. If he keeps going at the rate he is, he's going to be in the top 10 Premier League scorers of all time by the time he's 30, which is absolutely phenomenal. I know he's played for Liverpool, albeit as a winger in Manchester City, where he has this kind of cheap move where he's the one that gets six yards from goal. But it's still an absolutely remarkable achievement for a, for a guy who people still question his finishing. People still question whether he's kind of a completely key part of that Manchester City team. And yet, yeah, he's going to finish on about 170 Premier League goals, which is ridiculous. It's proof. There are, there are a lot of players like that. You don't need to be a great finisher to score a lot of goals. His skill, what makes him world class, is that ability to get so many chances that he can miss a few and it, it it's OK. He'll still score pretty regularly. I mean, you, th- you, could, you could put together a compilation of some of his misses and you'd be like, oh, my God, this guy's awful. And then obviously you see some of his goals. And you're like, this guy's yeah. amazing. A bit like, I mean, Aubameyang was out there for Arsenal. I should also say that um, Guardiola said after the game again that he wants to give Sterling a new contract. It's down to the club, but he definitely wants Sterling to stay. And he thinks that Sterling wants to stay, which is a feels like a shift in, in mood from maybe this time last year. Mm. Well... Big performance there by City against Norwich, who have, in matches against the Big Six, this is Daniel's stat, matches against the Big Six by Norwich this season, plus West Ham, who are fourth. They've played nine, they've won nil, they've drawn nil, they've scored nil, they've conceded 31. Yikes. All right. Uh, A couple of other Premier League matches to tell you about. Brighton won at Watford. Uh, first home game in charge for Hodgson, but no real let-up in the miserable run. The Hornets are on. They're now 12 games in a row without a win in all competitions. They're yet to score in three games under his management now as well. Brighton, meanwhile, seven games unbeaten. Now that's the longest ever unbeaten run in the Premier League. Palace and Brentford at the Brentford Community Stadium shared a goalless draw, probably the highlight of which was Christian Eriksen getting unveiled, as it were, or at least presented to the crowd before kickoff. Oh, here's a curious stat. Palace's only wins in 2022 have come in the FA Cup and they've only won one Premier League away game all season. Where was that? At Man City. Man City, yeah. Yeah, go figure. All right. The other game which took place this weekend did feel quite significant. Or did it? What can we make of Everton's 3-0 win against Leeds? I I think 
if you look at Frank Lampard's time at Chelsea, they were basically a, a roller coaster club, either from game to game or month to month, or even in the space of the same game. I think they they drew something like six or seven games to all in in the league and Champions League, and they had five threes and four fours and four twos and five twos, and they were just a, a kind of manic club. And at, at Chelsea, that wasn't good enough because elite clubs demand control because if you don't feel like you've got complete control on everything it's very hard to to mount title challenges but at Everton I think that's going to be perfectly good enough at the moment because let's face it they weren't winning every other week they weren't even turning up every other week under Benitez so if they do that under Lampard it might be galling when you go and get pumped 3-1 at Newcastle but if you then follow it up with a 3-0 win against Leeds you will move away from danger because you're better than the clubs below you so it won't last forever or it won't be acceptable forever. But for now, it's it's fun, which supporters wanted. And they're winning the odd game, which supporters definitely needed. Mm. They are now five points off the bottom three, the Toffees. Uh, Leeds with one or two issues, though, in this game. No shots on target whatsoever from Marcelo Bielsa's side. Although Rodrigo did hit the bar twice. R- Rafinha got hauled off as well, controversially, by Bielsa. Leeds with a tricky run. They got Man United, Liverpool and Spurs brackets and spurs in their next three matches <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think the, the the difficulty for leeds heading into that run of fixtures is they looked like they were potentially turning a corner they had those back-to-back wins at home to burnley and then away to west ham with that jack harrison hat trick uh, but then since then lost at home to newcastle had that very entertaining um three three draw away at villa in midweek and then pretty soundly beaten by an Everton team who haven't soundly beaten anyone for a long time. And it doesn't, it doesn't exactly fill you with confidence when they've got that, that tricky run of games to go into. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there are, there are multiple issues with that Leeds team. I think the fact that, that Patrick Bamford is, is still out is, um, is, is a concern. I mean, Dan James has done a decent job. He was fantastic in that game against Villa in, in midweek, but um, it, it still feels a bit perilous for Leeds. I think not least because both of the teams immediately below them, Everton and Newcastle, have got this new momentum, have both got new managers. We're seeing both Eddie Howe and Frank Lampard harnessing some of the energy that, that, that their fans can can generate and, and we're not really seeing that from Leeds. And you know, I think if they were to if they were to come through this this run of games that's facing them, having not picked up any points, they could find themselves, you know, right in trouble again. Mm. Uh, on the subject of the new signings, it was a first start for Everton for Donny van der Beek. Uh, how, how did he get on? Yeah, he was he was excellent. Although pretty much everyone in an Everton shirt was excellent. The the player that actually impressed me more, probably more in comparison to how it's been during most of his time at the club, was Alex Awobi, who is a really strange player in that it's very easy to forget that he cost Everton thirty million pounds from Arsenal, which was a a huge fee at the time and it, it's just not worked he, he's been played as a as a winger as a kind of right wing back as a central midfielder as, a, as an attacking midfielder here it looked like maybe because Lampard is a little bit more free with his maybe stylistically he, he kind of had this free role to sort of go where he want and kind of put out fires without the ball and then run at players with it and I thought he was I thought he was the best player um, but Van der Beek yes Van der Beek got man in the match and looks to have settled in really quickly whereas Deli Ali was was on the bench after his kind of slight horror show against Newcastle in midweek yeah Wobi is a really interesting player I was talking to someone who was saying they thought he could make it as a wing back and be quite good there when because he's not he's not the best at beating players from a sort of wide forward position but coming from a deeper position where it's a little bit easier to do that, um, or certainly to have a, an impact in an attacking sense, he could do that quite well. But I mean, I always thought he was he was kind of neat and tidy technical player at, at Arsenal. But I always thought he's not going to elevate you as a team. Like I think he could he, he'd be a fine squad player at a bigger club. But um, I think he he just doesn't really offer enough goals and assists wise when you're at a club like Everton to stand out. But maybe Lampard coming will will give him a role that he's never a sort of defined position that he's never really had on, on Leeds I do think kind of like what Daniel was saying with Everton that they're now in this they look a bit like they might get into the cycle of they'll lose some badly they'll but they might win enough I think Leeds will they'll just have for me that they will have enough days like the one at West Ham where it clicks they're amazing they win uh, and I don't think that means that will be 
sustainable necessarily or set the tone but I just think there'll be enough of those kind of crazy madcap one-off wins uh, over the course of the next few months to to keep them out of the bottom three certainly and also having said that they risked getting sucked back into trouble uh, having uh, since looked at the table they are six points clear of third bottom Norwich with a game in hand so there is mm. there is a bit of room for uh, for manoeuvre there plus they've got Norwich Burnley and Watford to count on so there's that mm. Excellent. All right. Well, that's the state of play in the Premier League. As I mentioned, we'll have a big preview of the midweek European action in Tuesday's edition of the Totally Football Show. But still to come today, it's the draw for the 2022 Intertotally Cup. Yes. All right. Some nervous faces, listener. Tom, Charlie, Daniel, eager to know who they will be drawn against in the first round of this prestigious competition. So let's go live straight away to Totally Headquarters. Producer Charlie has the balls just to fill you in on a little bit of background. Charlie Eccleshare debuting in this year's competition, having won the 2021 Football Clichés quiz. That's another podcast, apparently. Uh, Daniel Storey was a losing finalist in the extremely prestigious Intertotally Cup in 2020, but suffered a shock first-round exit to Sasha Gurionov in 2021. And Tom Williams, crikey, he's been eliminated in the first round of both editions of the Intertotally, losing to James Horncastle in 2020, and then eventual champion, yeah, eventual champion Michael Cox in 2021. Who are they going to get this time? Producer Charlie, the balls, please. Number 13. Is James Horncastle, two-time quarter-finalist. Will play number 10. Charlie Eccleshare. Oh, man. His debut in the Inter-Totally Cup. There's a meaty one. (laughs) All right, then. Number four. Tom, you're number four. Desperate for a good draw, remember? Home tie. Home tie. Home tie. Charlie's got got a very good FA Cup announcing number of goals voice. It's absolutely bang on. Let's hear another one, Charlie. We'll play number 12. Dom Fifield. Ooh. Ooh. The Om Derby. Dom. Yeah, the Om Derby. There it is. But also, (laughs) in similarity news, he was also eliminated in the first round like you were last year. Okay, moving on. He's good, though, Dom. Mm. He's good. Number 14. Number 14 is Adrian Clark, the only ex-pro in this year's tournament. We'll play number two. Benji Lanyardo, who was last year's runner-up. Crikey. All right. On we go. This has got me versus Michael all over it. Number 11. Is Matt Davis-Adams. And he will play number seven. Julian Laurence, Julian who came third last year after he uh, convinced us to introduce a third, fourth playoff. (laughs) That is one of the most French things I've ever heard of. Stand by for a 15th, 16th playoff if he (laughs) loses that game with with Matt. As you point out, Dan, both you and Michael Cox are still out there. Let's see who's out of the, the, the bag next. Number nine. It's Lindsay Hooper from the offside rule. We'll play number 16. Rory Smith from the New York Times. All right, that's going to be an interesting one. Number five. Duncan Alexander, Mr. Opta himself. We'll play number six. Alvaro Romeo, which is a rematch of a first-round shock from the 2020 Intertotally Cup when Alvaro... Upset. Spreadsheet-wielding Duncan Alexander. Crikey. All right, well, by my calculation, that leaves only four balls left in play. Daniel, you're amongst them. Let's see who's next out. Hmm. Number 15. Flo Lloyd Hughes, who is another debutant in this year's Intertotally. And she will play number three. Which is, Daniel... Sasha Gurionov. There you go. Oh, oh, this is my oh, 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 wow. <laughs> Sasha finished wow. fourth 
in 2021. If there's only two balls left. Those one of them is death. yours, Daniel. And the yeah. other one is mm. who? Michael Cox. Yeah, two-time Intertotally champion. In a live show, we, we did a bit of a round of Intertotally, and he was just... He was just machine-like. Pressure off, though, isn't it? Pressure I off. I suppose. Nobody expects anything. It's a free yeah. hit. Free just hit. go and express yourself. Mm. Yeah. That's a rematch. You, you came up against him in the final in the first edition of the Intertotally, didn't you? Yeah, I lot. Yes. It's, um, it, was, it was tighter than I thought it would be in the final, yes. But I did lose. Yeah. Wow. All oh, right. Well, that, that's to look forward to. Concentrate, on the, concentrate on the Monday mornings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And whereas, uh, Tom, you happy with your draw, Dom Fifield? Dom's going to be tough. I mean, he's got London football knowledge. He's a Palace fan, so he's got, you know, lower league football knowledge. Um, he's got a decent amount of French football knowledge, which previously has been a useful niche for me. Mm. Um, you know, he's a man who knows his onions, so I'm going to have to be on top of my game. 90s alternative music uh, knowledge as well, mm. beloved knowledge, that kind of thing. I don't know if that's a, around this year. We'll, we'll see. And Charlie, you've got the horn, big James Horncastle. Fraudcastle. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> not, not going to be easy. I, I, just, I, I mean, I just hope... Who, who did you beat in that, in that football cliches quiz? Uh, Jack Pitbrook oh, right. in, in a, a very, very close, closely fought final. Um, right. Yeah, no, I, I'm looking forward to that. Mm. Winning that competition got you into this one, I think. It's kind of a feeder tournament. <laughs> yeah. It? yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like winning the Europa League gets yeah. you in Champions League. Nice. All right, Wait, producer Charlie, when does it all get underway? Oh blimey, this week, next week? Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Stand by for more news on that, listener. It could be this Thursday, which is another good reason to make sure you join us Thursday. Also in Thursday's show, we'll have all the reaction to the midweek Champions League, but not the Europa League because they play that on Thursday. Tom? Yeah, just to bring things full circle, perhaps when the Intertotally Cup has concluded, we could find the winner of an equivalent South American podcast <laughs> quiz. Mm. For a um, quiz that no a, one a will one-off watch. match that country. no one will pay any attention <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah. Very nice indeed. Uh, all right then. Grant. Well, uh, Tom? Uh, Daniel and Charlie and producer Charlie, many thanks for being with us today. And listener, you too. Have a super Valentine's Day, if that's your thing, or a super day, whatever day it is with you. Catch you again Tuesday, possibly, and Thursday too. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.